Black Female Project. Hi, this is Precious Stroud. Welcome to the Black Female Project podcast. So I am Cheryl Davis. I am currently working in social services or government relations of sorts, but I always kind of consider myself a community person, all about elevating, amplifying community voice. Um, I would say I'm, you know, I am really mid-career with regards to this, but um, uh, the number of years that I've put in, I guess I'm late career, but until I move on to the next thing and Mm -hmm. then it's entry level. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. All right. So what inspired your connection to Black Female Project? So my connection was inspired by Precious herself. I think the phenomenal work that Precious is doing, the work that you have like done to really help young people, at least in the work that I've seen in Oakland, as well as now in San Francisco, making sure that their voices and their presence is recognized and seen and their voices are heard. And just that passion and the energy to actually share the story. Um, And then just realizing that as we've done this work, a lot of times the people behind the scenes are women, Black women who have not had their stories told, and they get lost in the shuffle or they are willing to fall back so that everybody else can kind of rise up. And so this passion sparked for me this idea that, you know what, we need to also make sure that the people who are doing the work that don't want any recognition get recognized. Thank you. What type of work do you do and what led you to it? So currently I am doing work that's about anti-discrimination, anti-bias, really have been focused, I feel like, all my life around social justice issues. I definitely did not intend, when I was growing up, I wanted to do a job that was going to pay me a lot of money. And as time went on, I ended up being a teacher. But being a teacher in private school really showed me the disparities between the young people that I was working with during the day and the young people that I had grown up with or the young person that I was or the opportunities that I had. And really felt compelled to say, you know, it shouldn't make a difference where you live or where you come from in terms of what you get, you're able to access or what opportunities you get. Um, And so because of that, started doing a lot of work and that path led me to where I am now. So through teaching and then volunteering in community and then running um, community-based organizations, had an opportunity to move into city government to really elevate the work in a different way and work with systems leaders and think about how to change the system so that we just don't keep fighting the same problem over and over again. We're hearing a lot about systems change or systemic change, how exactly do you, or I'll put it this way, in your conversations and your meetings, are you seeing a nice mix of people when we talk about systems change? Can the system change without representation from different voices? And then the second part of the question is, what exactly is systems change for people who may not have heard the term before? So I don't think that systems change, I think it's already been proven that systems change is not going to happen without representation of all types of voices. I am adamant about, like, we can't even begin the discussion if the people who are most impacted in a negative way, who have the most harm from the system, are not at the table, if they're not part of the conversation or the dialogue. And systems change is really looking at what are the policies, what are the practices, what are the 
the things that are in place that perpetuate the issues and challenges that we're facing. Um, so we can say all day, like we need to address drug addiction. So we can focus on drug addiction, but there's a system in place that's getting people into the place where they're addicted to drugs. And whether that's hopelessness, whether that is income or economic issues, whether that is family issues, whether that's trauma. But if we don't, like in this instance, if we don't address the trauma that's happening, that's triggering the need for numbing of some sort, which is what drug addiction may be about, um, then we're not going to change it, right? Like we're just going to always be trying to help people on the back end. Systems change is saying, let's look at why this keeps happening and do something about it. Mm-hmm. So do you feel that you were prepared for what you've encountered in the professional realm? I'm assuming being in these conversations, kind of if a and a region is just beginning the conversations, it can, it's not always easy. Do you feel like you've been prepared? You were prepared either by your parents or in your community? I don't know that anyone is ever fully prepared. Like you go into these spaces and sometimes you're just like, did did somebody really just say that? Like, are you okay? Do you realize what you've just said? Um, I think resilience is not something that can be taught. So that's all about life. I think life prepares you for those moments so that you can just say, did that really just happen versus turning tables over and yelling and screaming? And sometimes maybe that's what you need to do, um, but life teaches you that. So I do think I was prepared in some way. I think I maybe was over-prepared because sometimes people want you to really be angry and irritated and just plain pissed off. And when you've done this work or you've been in these places, unfortunately, you're not surprised by the behavior or the sayings or the language or the the looks that you get. And people want you to be outraged. But sometimes if you've seen it a hundred times, it's hard to be outraged because it's become the norm. Um, And so I think that now I look back and go, maybe it's good to take a little break or a breather from some of this because it's been normalized in a way that it shouldn't be. For you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me, it's like I just go into some meetings or things happen and I go, not really surprised. I think people in the Bay Area tend to be a little bit more surprised. I'm originally from the South. I was born in Texas. My grandmother's um, neighbors, like I dare not walk on their lawn. There were very clear rules about like, they weren't written, but there were unspoken rules about which neighbor's lawn you walked on, who you spoke to, who you didn't, how you spoke to them. Um, And all of that at that point for me was really about race, right? Like I knew that there were certain white neighbors that I just needed to really pay attention to and make sure that I didn't make them mad. Um, And I think here we've got this false sense of security. And then when things happen, people go, I can't believe it. And they're not prepared for it. Um, I think about my son sometimes that maybe I haven't done enough to prepare him for um, the disparities that exist or the realities. And then um, something will happen and then he'll be like, oh, no, no. We've had the talk, right? We've had the conversation, and he hasn't been taken um, off guard by it. So for me, I feel like, yes, life definitely in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up, when we moved to um, California, we spent time in, I lived in Hercules and Pinole before it was, when it was unincorporated, and it was a very different place than it is now. Um 
And that helped me get some thick skin, but it also helped me learn what people call code switching and how you talk in certain places. And I often laugh because my son, you know, has he's not always sure that he's had an authentic experience in terms of whatever that means in terms of race or um geography or income. And um, and I always joke, you know, you grew up in the Black Baptist Church. It does not get any more authentic mm-hmm. than that. Um, and I think that that has helped prepare in ways that, you know, I, I, I talk a lot lately about this idea of Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and, and all these folks and, and the work that they did and the preparation and the resilience that was developed in this idea of faith and spirituality. And so I think that that, whatever you call it, however it helps you through, whether it's meditating or prayer, that stuff helps you get ready for those moments when you just are not sure how you're going to make it through. Mm-hmm. That actually leads really nicely into this question about how has spirituality played a role in your professional journey? You know, just building on this idea of faith and spirituality, um, the more and more just in the last six months or so, I've come back to this idea of like people talk about meditating or yoga. And I'm like, oh, that's what church was, right? Like that was that moment of take a moment and breathe and talk to God. But that was about breathing and taking a moment and releasing something that was inside you to be able to move forward. And that's what meditation and yoga does. And I feel like all those years as as a PK, a preacher's kid, as they called it in the church world, that really helped me be able to be prepared for those moments of, I don't know how I'm going to make it. But I also think the songs, much like Mm. the civil rights movement, much like slavery, whether it was the hidden message to get to freedom or whether it was, you know what, I don't know how I'm going to make it. I'm feeling hopeless. But that song of encouragement, I noticed that with my son lately, like that It's just planted there, right? And whether you show up at church or not, that moment of needing to encourage yourself, that song will pop into your head. And I'm listening more and more to a lot of these conscientious rappers that are coming along and even some of the music and how they're integrating that in there, because maybe it's not happening in a more natural way, but needing to encourage yourself, um, it's being built into a lot of the music right now. Mm -hmm. Have you seen an impact on that music and the have and those messages being received by the young people that you encounter. Yeah. What's interesting is we've done some work. I've done some work with young people and had the University of San Francisco and some partners kind of do some evaluation and do come in and do interviews and ask kids questions. And what has been amazing is the point of reference for the kids in terms of like how they decide that they are going to keep doing the work or they're going to push forward or do something like they'll say, um, well, if Maya Angelou and then they'll recite some piece of a poem that has been engaged uh, or introduced to them, or they'll think about um, Langston Hughes and Dreamkeeper and like, what does that mean? And where are we in terms of like the dream deferred? And for me, that is back to my foundation because most of those poems I learned as a part of Black History Month in church where I had to get up in February and recite a poem. And it's that piece where I'm like, look, let's have a conversation about this. How do you rely on this? How do you go back to this in those moments where you're kind of like questioning things? And they've come back with, you know, like if Maya Angelou was the voice of encouragement for her generation or for all of these generations, maybe that's my role to figure out how to take that back. And saying to folks like, 
it's this impact of being able to have a conversation and move it in a very different way. Uh, I was talking to someone or I was talking with a group and I said, let's think about this line in the poem where she, Maya Angelou says, shadows on the wall, noises down the hall, life doesn't frighten me at all. Or um, don't show me frogs and snakes and listen for my screams. If I'm afraid at all, it's only in my dreams. And I thought about, I use that to say, let's really talk about how dreams can be scary. Let's think about Emmett Till's mom, right? Mm. The dream of freedom, of walking freely down the streets. And her son had that. Like that was the dream, right? That we would have freedom. And yet that freedom cost him his life in some way. And being able to have these conversations about like these words and these things that were used and how they move us forward. So if we think about it in that context of what the black church used to be in terms of teaching young people how to read and giving you discipline and giving you structure and helping you build community and build network, that is for me how this work operates and having people understand that role and what or who is feeling that role right now, right? Um, in one of his books, the Howard Thurman, as well as Ben Mays, who were mentors to King, talks about, Ben Mays talks about this idea that the church, that's the pastor was the person telling people go to school. Like, you can do this, go to college, push forward. They became the social justice warriors. So really figuring out, like, how do we have these conversations about it beyond religion, but the role that it played in having these conversations with young people, I feel like, has made that impact to be like, what is that for you today? And are you going to be the the voice that encourages people in the same way that the ministers were really behind the movement in some way or that churches were behind the movement in the day? You know, we've done I've done a bunch of these workshops and trainings with young people and with um, adults. And the response I get from all of them is like, we need more of this, right? From the adults that are working in schools, the adults that are working in community, and the young people as well. Um, so there is a sense, there is a disconnect in terms of when we talk about cultural humility, or we talk about cultural competency, like all these words that are thrown around. One of the things that I did hear very specifically from um, someone who works in a university that's teaching counselors to go into schools is that there's a lot of professional development happening, but not necessarily like this in terms of like giving the tools or the language or having these deeper conversations. Um, and that is something definitely that we hear from the kids that they're like, if somebody was doing this, I would be more involved or more engaged or more interested. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's been, and that's across the board, public and private school. I know we've done, I've done a couple of workshops. And then after the workshops, had schools invite us, you know, the team to come in and present to their school. So there's people are hungry for it mm-hmm. because it's a different way of learning. And I think that that's the difference too for a lot of schools, especially before there was segregation, just like this, before there was desegregation, that there was this more intensity around like why this is important and understanding what this education means to you as an individual versus it's the law and you got to go to school, you know? Mm-hmm. Can you tell me if your Blackness and or femininity is either honored or challenged in your field or type of work? Blackness, I feel like I've, lately I've been going into meetings and saying ahead of time, like, look, I just want to make sure I'll put it out there. I'm a Black woman, right? And I don't want people to then think that all I care about is Black issues. I've had people push back and say, 
Um, when I recommend or do something, they may only see someone's blackness when I say, I want to recommend a person to do something. They'll say, well, we wanted a man. And I'm like, it's a black man, right? Like in some way that the blackness is this idea that the only lens that I use Mm -hmm. is the black lens. I think that that has become problematic for me because then I start to dial it back because you don't want to be, because you know that people are afraid of the idea and the, the notion of that. But at the same time, there is some level of dishonor to do it that way too. Um, So I feel like there right now I'm going in and having to say like, I know I'm black. I know you know I'm black, but there's more to it. Let's talk about the intersection out. Like I never have anybody say to me, like you're only care, you only care about women issues. You only care about female issues. That has never come up, but definitely I feel like I'm always having to justify if I do something from a place of, if it looks like it's going to benefit the black population. And then I'm like, well, let's just be clear. Just because I said that we are doing work around formerly incarcerated doesn't mean I only care about black people. I understand that the incarceration rates are disproportionately impacting black folks, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying I'm only helping black folks. I'm saying that we're going to focus on formerly incarcerated coming out and how do we support them. I always love to tell people, you know, I did this. I took a group of kids to Lighthouse for the Blind once, Mm -hmm. and they were asking questions of the people in there, like, what does it feel like? And, um, you know, how long have you been blind? And just a bunch of a series of questions. And one lady said, um, she said, well, let me tell you, because they wanted to know what it was like to be blind. She was like, let me just tell you, I haven't been blind all my life. Mm -hmm. I have been black. Black is harder. (laughs) And I was like, okay. (laughs) You know, so again, like she did that and she had this freeness about her. And I think there's something that as we get older, this kind of like, I don't really care what you think. Like I'm looking forward to more and more walking in that, like walking in truth and not being worried about how it's going to impact somebody else if it's truth. Right. And that if it's given in love, that's the other thing I keep saying to myself, choose love over fear. And that if we're going to say something, if we're saying it in love, let's not be afraid to say it, like really question why we're sharing it, why we're doing it. But if we're doing it for the right reason, which is in the spirit of love, then let's let's move it. Mm-hmm. What advice would you like to share with young black women looking to get involved in your field? So first advice, I think, is thick skin right? That has been always helpful for me. Thick skin, being able to not personalize everything because sometimes it is, you know, personal and sometimes it's not. And even when it's personal, when you respond in that, then you make it personal and let's not even get into that. So that's one. The other one is, which I think is really hard. So you know, I always want to say be true to yourself, but before that, like know who you are, right? So figuring out like, why are you doing a thing? What is it that you're committed to? I just was telling somebody yesterday that was kind of like trying to figure out what they wanted to do and looking at other people and how their path was happening and what was going on for them. And I'm like, so when you do this work, you have to make sure that you are clear why you do this work. Um, So know who you are. So that way, when you watch other people doing things and they're not maybe doing the work or they're not as invested, that you're not worried about what they're doing because you're in it 
for your own reasons and for the right reasons. And then you won't be so upset about like what's going on with another person and then be true to yourself. Right. So that way, as you navigate through it, I think a lot of times as we go along this work, it looks like other people are um, moving at a faster pace or that they're not putting as much in, but yet they are benefiting in a different way or they are co-opting ideas and using those ideas to advance themselves. But I always come back to like, I really want to do this work because I want things to be better for folks. And at the end of it, things are getting better or it's improved for somebody, then I've done what I wanted to do. If I'm in this to advance or to make a lot of money or to get recognition or to be seen, then okay, then that's where you push your energy and your efforts and you keep working on that. But if you are really in it to make the system better, to make sure that everybody has equal access and opportunity, that government does what it's intended to do, then you won't be upset when somebody else is like going off the rails and doing their own thing because you're looking at what's important. You're focused on what's important and you know what's important to you and you don't take it personal when somebody else is just, you know, gaming. Mm -hmm. How did you gain that clarity? Because I think that instruction is helpful. Identify what, where it's coming from and what in you is being ignited, so to speak, Mm -hmm. or it kind of feels a little uncomfortable. Then, then what? So now I see it, but I'm still angry. Or I still feel like she was talking about me. Right. So how do I how do I reconcile that emotionally? So I, I would just keep going back to like, what's your method of spirituality and how do you center yourself? Because people will be mean. I'm not saying you're not going to have your feelings hurt. I'm not saying you're not going to be angry. But like, how do you choose to respond to that? And what is it that you hope to gain from that response? Right. And. How do you want to be remembered and perceived after that? So you have to have that moment to kind of go back and reflect and whether that is meditation or prayer. The other thing that I've been noticing or some of my studies have found, the other thing is a reflection journal. Right. Taking a moment like they are talking. There's the Harvard um, Business Review has all these articles about senior management and folks that are in leadership. You know what they do? They write it down Mm -hmm. and they write it down and they either look at it right then or they go back and review it. They write it down in terms of their notes and what's important. They write it down in terms of what they learn. They write it down in terms of reflection and how they feel. And they use all of that to inform the next thing. Right. So I think that that's the other thing, like taking a moment to center yourself. But if you are in a space, if there's something that you really want to remember, like write it down. If there's a feeling that you're feeling, write it down so that when you come back later, you can go, what was that feeling? Where do I how do I feel about that now? And where was it coming from? So that's the other huge piece of the process that I'm actually starting to think about, like, how do we incorporate that as a practice with young people and with um, folks that are beginning careers? Because that is the thing that the top school is saying, like, people need to be doing this in our studies, in our case studies, in our evaluations, in our assessments. What we are finding is that journaling and writing it down makes the difference in leadership. Hmm. All right, note taken. <laughs> As we wrap up our conversation today, are there any final words of wisdom or lessons learned that you'd like to share? I think given that this is the Black female project, right, um, I think the hardest thing to do is to find beauty in yourself, right? 
those moments where, you know, and, and I still do it too, where you look in the mirror and you play around with, well, you know, your face or your skin or you, you know, you try and you see which way do you want your part or do, and you st- don't take the moment to stop and love yourself. Mm-hmm. I think that that is the hardest thing for women to do, but I think it is doubly hard for black women to do, right? Like questioning which space you're going to go in today and whether my hair should be straight or whether it should be curly or whether it should be pulled back or like taking a moment to just look at yourself and just realize and recognize and appreciate all that you have done and been through and that that is strength and beauty and doing that thing where they tell you to put the post-it note on the mirror or to do something to remind yourself that you are beautiful and exceptional and strong. You know, I just, I think about like, that's the thing I always try to impart when I'm working with someone. Like maybe they don't, everybody else doesn't see how extraordinary or exceptional you are, but I want you to see that. But we might do a lot of encouraging of other people. I don't know that we always take the time to encourage ourselves. So um, note to myself, but I think note to everyone else, take time to encourage yourself and celebrate yourself. Like, take the moment to be like, you know what? I did do good, you know? And the fact that I am up and, you know, as the old folks used to say, above ground, Mm -hmm. you know, like, that is a good thing. And celebrate that. Because every day that you are above ground, there is something that you had to do to be able to get out and will yourself to just do whatever it is that you do. Whatever it is that you're doing, that's a good thing. And it's way more than somebody had opportunity to do 400 years ago in your same position. So make the most of it, because no matter how bad it is today, it could be worse. Thank you, Cheryl. We would like to thank our sponsors, Che Abram, Fern Stroud with BlackVines.net, Holly Babe, Faust, and Janet Stone, who are donors and supporters of the project. Yuju Ho, Melody Fuller with Oakland Wine and Food Society. You too can learn how to become a sponsor. Please go to blackfemaleproject.org. Again, that is blackfemaleproject.org. 